Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Sup? I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our producer and showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur. What is up, Sam? Hey, guys. Great episode tonight. Great episode tonight. Strong work. Uh, our guest tonight is three-peat guest star, Dr. Mike Fahey, to discuss EKG reading, a huge topic that I think was a huge success. People are going to love it. Before we dive into some content, though, hey, Chris, can you tell us about our show? Yes. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Mike Fahey, uh, who comes to us from the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School, where he is Chief of Pediatric Cardiology and Program Director for the Pediatric Residency. He is the recipient of multiple teaching awards across all these training levels, and today he teaches us what the EKG actually measures, how to approach the EKG, and of course, common pathologies that present with abnormal findings. So instead of a pun, I decided to go with a haiku that was developed by, well, that came from AI. So, little feet, big heart beat, sticks on skin, wires all around, heart so strong, beats. Yeah. Cool, we love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mike Fahey, welcome back to the Cripsiders. We're so excited to have you a third time. We are unbelievably lucky. Welcome back to the Cripsiders. Uh, thanks, guys. I can't believe that you want me back after the first two episodes, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. This is like the pediatric cardiology version of a hat trick uh, <laughs> or something else that comes in a three. Um, for those that maybe missed previous episodes, they can go back and listen to them right now. But to catch them up, do you mind giving a brief introduction about who you are so our audience gets to know you a little bit better? Sure. So I'm a recovering uh, fishing addict who then kind of went into pediatrics and pediatric cardiology and then decided to have a family. And so between my work and my family, I don't get a chance to fish very much anymore. So now I'm like a gardening addict because <laughs> that keeps me really close to home and I can still pull it off. But I'm a peds cardiologist. I work out at UMass Chan uh, Medical School out in Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, I'm also a pediatric residency program director there. Representing UMass and with the Worcester Woosots, who recently took our minor league baseball team, the Pawsots. It was about four years ago, but we still talk about it. <laughs> we should go ahead and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we've done some of the intro questions. Let's do some pitch of the week. Chris, we haven't done a pitch of the week in a while. Like forever. Why don't we do uh, <laughs> a quick run through? But we'll, we'll start with our, our the guest esteemed guest. Yes. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? A pitch of the week. Any form of uh, media consumption, book, uh, a Netflix documentary in French? Yeah. So I was hanging out with some friends and we were, ta- I forget what the heck we were talking about, but uh, this podcast came up. I think it, uh, Providence actually came up in conversation and somebody said, oh, you got to listen to Crime Town. And, Crime uh, Town. Uh, I don't know. If, have you guys thrown that one out before? Absolutely. Uh, no, not in the. So I have. I have a pretty. I have like a forty-minute commute to to and from work, and and it's a long podcast, but it's really good. So it's all about the mafia and politics and Providence, and it it was great. Really well done. A lot of content there, and and just great storytelling. 
And for those of us who have lived in Providence, um, it's really scary to realize that this stuff is absolutely true. <laughs> and like 15 years ago, I feel like I moved here. People talked about it. I'm like, yeah, Buddy Sancy. He was the mayor literally like two mayors ago. Like it was not that long ago. Although yeah. I will say I have a better understanding of city corruption now. I'm like, all right, everything's kind of corrupt. And so... Uh, and so now, now I kind of just, I mean, I accept it. It's a little bit different, oh, no. you know. <laughs> Great podcast to, to change your views about uh, the, the democratic <laughs> process. Uh, oh, um, perfect. Chris, what about you? Do you have, a, you have a pick of the week? Yes. So what's better than one book by Syed Tabatabai is two books, two books by, by Syed Tabatabai. Yeah, if you guys don't know who he is, he is the real Dr. T on Twitter. And he writes fantastic, like beautiful, long narrative threaded tweets. And um, he recently had a book. It came out and it's called These Vital Signs. And it's one. he's always been a wonderful author. And um, somehow I pre-ordered the book both on Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble, not realizing I ordered from two separate online retailers. Um, but so that means I get to finish my book and then I get to gift one of these to someone. So I'm going to have to think about that. Nice. So email, email us at the curbs at the cribsiders at gmail.com to, to vow for the, the, to yeah, buy. We should, vow maybe we should, we should think about doing some book. sort of uh contest. I, I I'm cool with that. Away. Yeah. Excellent. Sam, how about you? You got a, you got a quick pick? I do. I do. Um, so my pick is also a podcast, different flavor though. Mm. It's called um, Fake Doctors, Real Friends. It is the Scrubs Rewatch podcast with, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. with oh, Zach Graff awesome. and Donald Faison. Um, during the beginning of the pandemic, they went and decided to rewatch every episode and uh, and talk about it. Um, for those who are, forget to tell people that we may or may not have been inspired to go into medicine by Scrubs, um, it's a really, really good uh, podcast. It's super fun. They go through every single episode and they're still working on it right now. Oh, nice. Um, and then for those also who may or may not have trained in Providence, Rhode Island, um, there's a lot of uh, of pearls from the real JD. So uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Nice, nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, I will have to check cool. that out. That's true. I feel like Scrubs in general is a great pick of the week. Uh, mm. One of the favorites. Um, all right. Just to just under in time, I'm going to do a quick pick of the week. I'm actually going to do two. I know it's cheating. I don't care. We're not going to fight about it. One, uh, because what I was going to say is the TV show on Apple TV, Shrinking, which, if you haven't seen, is a hilarious, great representation of a clinical psychologist who undergoes uh, uh, sad trauma and then just destroys all boundaries with his patients. And so, you know, his patient loses a house, so he brings him into his own house. And hilarity ensues. Uh, very well done. And actually done by... Actually done by the creator of Scrubs, Bill Lawrence. So if oh, we're, if we're right. connecting, oh, yeah. great segue. I know if we're connecting these things through, it seems like Bill Lawrence shows are all things we have to watch. But keep going. That's okay, so true. here's the challenge: is to segue to this one where we, uh, Chris and I, were at uh, Society of General Internal Medicine. It was a General Internal Medicine conference, so no one cares about it. But we were in Denver, which, which has a interactive art museum called Meow Wolf, which is in about four cities. If anyone's seen Meow Wolf. It's this very psychedelic, interactive art experience uh, that is pretty unique, and you should check it out. Uh, it's a trip in like every sense of the world. Meow wolf. So that's that's what you did when you were in Denver. That's right. And I should have I should have gone because um, I was supposed to have a, a fly fishing trip out in Denver, and oh. it rained the entire time, and my yeah. heart was broken. So, mm. <sighs> Chris, we gotta right. get on fly fishing sometime. Yes, we totally should. Oh. You can do a makeup trip over go. Massachusetts. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I haven't I haven't fished out of Massachusetts, so I definitely got to try. Mm -hmm. If you haven't fished in Wooster, it's like you haven't even fished. 
Well, I'd go a little further, uh, further less than that. Yeah. I don't really know that much about Worcester geography. So that sounds like a perfect time to get into some abs- some real content. Mike, we're excited to have you to talk about EKGs or ECGs. That might be our first question. But uh, let's dive into some content. Sam, I'm going to turn it over to you to, to take it away. All right. Um, so welcome, everyone, to this is our most ambitious episode yet. We're actually attempting to read an EKG on an audio podcast. <laughs> so uh, so let's see what we can do. Um, but I really do think we have what it takes. So um, we're going to start with a common case that we see at Cash Like Children's. Um, actually, it's so common, we're actually going to steal it from one of our episodes on brew with Dr. Joel Teeter. Um, so feel free to check that out. Um, so this case is Bree. She's a 65-day-old ex-full-term baby girl with no past medical history who's brought into the Cash Like ED by her dad. So earlier this afternoon, Bree was placed down for a nap. Then several minutes later, dad heard what he thought was a coughing, choking noise. And so when he went to the crib, he noticed that her lips were blue and her breathing would alternate between fast and slow. He immediately called EMS and he has difficulty estimating how long the event may have lasted, but thinks it was somewhere between 30 seconds and five minutes. The symptoms resolved before EMS arrived. And um, prior to this episode, Bree had been in her usual state of health, denying any review of system question that we usually ask. And in the ED, her vital signs are age appropriate. The physical exam is notable for a healthy, happy infant with a normal, um, normal exam from head to toe. And then upon further discussion of family history, dad mm. does say that his brother died in his 30s and they still have no idea why. So although Dr. Teeter did uh, mention we have new guidelines coming down the pike, we're still operating on the 2016 guidelines, and so we order an EKG. So let's start basic. What are we actually looking for on this test? Um, what general information does it provide for us? And is it EKG or ECG? Okay. So I, before we even get into that, I want to a couple quick disclaimers. First of all, when Sam came to me and said, oh, yeah, we're going to do a podcast on reading an EKG, <laughs> I said... You got to be crazy. Like, you know, you can't do that. Like, you got to look at the things and whatever. Okay, so that's the first thing. So if this podcast is terrible, you know who to blame. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. Okay, second that's fair. Dis- that's fair. I'll take it. <laughs> second disclaimer. I'm go- like, I'm going to try to keep things really basic because I remember when I was a fellow learning electrophysiology, I, like my eyes would roll back in my head. I'd just go to sleep. So we're going to try to keep it super basic. And, uh, and that will necessarily mean that any electrophysiologists out there who are listening to this, you're probably going to like have a little reflux. You might vomit in your mouth a little bit, but it, I, you know, we're going to try to get through it. So, okay. So the first question, ECG versus EKG, ECG electrocardiogram. I'm pretty sure EKG is just the German electrocardiogram with a K and I, I might be butchering that, but I, I think that that's where it comes. I think that's where it comes from, you know, Eindhoven, first, first Eindhoven and all that. First pearl, already, already moving. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Look at that. And what are we looking for? So uh, you remember an EKG is the, uh, and, and by those two terms are totally interchangeable. Um, both of them are correct. Uh, an EKG is a measurement of the electrical signals of the heart. Um, everybody, as you know, if you've, well, if you've been, uh, through first year or second year physiology in medical school, you know that everybody's heart has an electrical system. The electricity that flows through the heart, uh, causes the muscles to squeeze. And, um, an EKG is just a measurement of the amplitude and the direction of those electrical signals. Awesome. So, um, I guess the first place to start when we talk about this is actually the leads. Um, I was always confused that we got a 12 lead EKG and we already put 10 stickers on. So that already seems like a problem. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what these leads represent? Absolutely. So uh, the placement of the different leads is going to let us look at those electrical signals 
from different viewpoints. So if electricity flowing through the heart is a complex three-dimensional process, but that's too complicated for any of us to, uh, to comprehend. So if I was going to try to describe to you, uh, you know, what, what the signal looks like, we got to break it down into a simpler thing. Um, and the other thing to say is, you know, if, if somebody had never seen a school bus before and they walked up to it and you say, hey, describe it to me. Well, they give you a much different description looking at it from the side compared to when the, if they were looking at it from the front. Right. So it's just kind of the same thing with an EKG. When you're looking at those electrical signals from different angles, it's going to give you kind of different information and you have to interpret it a little bit of a different way. Uh, so the different leads. So we have a set of leads uh, that go on the limbs, right? The limb leads. So that's AVR, AVL, and AVF. Those different combinations of those leads we use to determine what are called the bipolar leads. That's leads one, two, and three. And then you have, so those, those leads, one, two, and three, they don't, they don't have stickers. Those are just kind of using the limb leads, different combinations of the limb leads uh, to kind of generate a little bit of different information um, about the electrical signals. And then you have the precordial leads. The precordial leads are the ones that go across the chest, and uh, those are the ones with the V in front of them, so V1 through V6 in a standard EKG. And, uh, and so those different groups of leads are going to give us different information. The limb leads are going to give us information about the electricity in a coronal or frontal plane, like the face of a clock on the chest. Uh, whereas the precordial leads are going to give us information about that electricity in a transverse or axial plane. I imagine that like the true electrophysiologists or the experts in cardiology see like a matrix three-dimensional picture of the heart when they're looking at an EKG and can actually imagine the different planes where I feel like I have just like associated, okay, these are the leads that I need to look for as a cluster to look for abnormalities. Do you have like this 3D image in your mind when you're looking at an EKG? Absolutely not. Ah. And my, uh, <laughs> I wish I did. And, and um, the guy who I learned uh, ECGs uh, from the most, uh, Dr. Leonard Seinfeld down at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, great guy, great cardiologist. He used to, uh, and, and, and old school cardiologists used to do these things, vector cardiograms, where you would look at an EKG and by looking at the amplitudes and the different leads, you could kind of see, imagine in your mind, the direction that this electricity is flowing kind of in a continuum. And he tried to teach me that night. Mm. I, I never quite got That's it. That's the so. old school. Sorry, Dr. Seinfeld. So one question I have is you described one configuration of these leads. Do you see, are there other types of configurations and are there, is there a specific uh, reason why we might see a different configuration? So, um, the, the, the standard 12 lead EKG should be set up the same way every time. And there's a standard way to do that. We're not going to go over to here. You can look it up on the internet. Um, pediatric EKGs, they're oftentimes 15 lead EKGs because you place a couple of more precordial leads on the right side of the chest. And you'll sometimes use those in congenital heart diseases. For example, if somebody has like dextrocardia or some funky anatomic issue where you really want it, you really need to kind of get some information from the right side. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't really, even though we get the, the right side of leads, particularly in the younger kids or kids with congenital heart disease, I don't really use them very much because I just don't have enough experience to do them. See, this I think is that's a, a, good, a pearl. Good, good example of electrophysiologists like, oh my gosh, this guy's a cardiologist and he doesn't use the right side <laughs> of leads, you know? No, that's a perfect pearl for us. Like, 
Agreed. I need to know that if you're not looking at them, I'm certainly not looking not at looking them and at it's going to be okay. You know, cause, um, it really is going to be okay. But speaking of those precordial leads, I was just curious, um, which ones kind of, if you think about it anatomically, which ones really represent the left side of the heart, which ones represent the right side of the heart. And is that okay to ask? 100%. Yeah. So, uh, I would say in pediatric EKGs, it's really helpful to, to simplify things because it's complicated enough, right? So we're really going to focus when we look at the precordial leads on V1, V1, sits in the fourth intercostal space on the right of the sternum. So it's all the way on the right side of the heart. So it's just looking at the heart from the right side of the patient. And then we're going to focus on all the way on the other side and lead V6, which is in the mid thoracic line in the sixth or so intercostal space. And that's going to be looking at the heart, obviously from the left side. And so as we see that ventricular, sorry, as we see that electrical force, move through the different chambers, and, and in particular the ventricles, as we'll discuss in a minute, looking at that signal all the way from the right and all the way from the left is going to give us some helpful information. And I know that we're going to probably talk about how we look at, for example, ventricular hypertrophy later, and that's where that kind of little dynamic is going to come in handy. And is there any value of knowing um, the direction our impulses are going for the limb leads themselves as well? Um, so... It, that is helpful when we talk about axis. So uh, okay. we're, I think we're probably going to get into like, hey, yeah. how do you, you know, what's your method of doing this? Uh, so that yeah. we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about QRS axis. So we also, you know, when we talk about leads and distributions, we also hear the stuff represents the coronary arteries. Um, maybe that's more in adult medicine than it is pediatrics, but nevertheless, um, you know, I remember two, three in AVF is always the, inf- you know, is always the, uh, the inferior, but, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about the coronary distributions and what those mean according to your heart? Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely right to say that, uh, you focus a little bit more on that in adult medicine because adults develop, uh, atheros- coronary atherosclerosis and ischemic heart disease where kids don't really use, you have those problems. Um, but you can use that, that information that we were just talking about. Remember the, for example, those, uh, Precordial leads are looking at the heart from from different angles going across the front of the chest And if you think if you can imagine again, this is hard without a visual But imagine that heart sitting in the chest apex kind of pointed a little bit over to the left Heart kind of resting on top of the diaphragm and you can imagine Where the coronary well if you've looked at a netter recently looking at the how the coronary arteries kind of wrap around the heart in different locations you could kind of imagine if you had ischemia in one of those blood vessels, for example, the left anterior descending, well, that's kind of right, that's going right down the middle of the front of the chest, right? So you're probably going to see abnormalities in those mid-precordial leads because that's right where the LAD is going. Um, whereas the right coronary artery system wraps around, you know, uh, kind of inferiorly and posteriorly. And so um, ischemia there is going to give you more uh uh, ab- abnormalities in the signals and, for example, the inferior leads. And maybe to, to ground it, because I think um, for, for the next step of talking about the EKG, we're talking about visualize, but we're, we're doing the flight school before people fly the plane. So I think this is still going to work really well. Can you kind of talk us through uh, the, the P wave, the QRS complex, the T? Uh, what are we looking at when we're looking at a single lead? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the nomenclature sounds simple, but even that kind of can get confusing for people. So the P wave, that's the little blip, right? The, the, the tiny little bump that comes before the big spiky bump. So the little bump is the P wave. That represents depolarization of the atria, the upper chambers. You get a little pause, uh, which represents the little bit of a delay in that electrical signal moving from atria down into the ventricles. 
You get the QRS complex, which is you know the tall kind of spiky blip. That represents ventricular depolarization. And it makes sense that that blip is bigger, right? Because the ventricles are more massive uh, and therefore they create more electricity. So that makes a bigger amplitude uh, blip. And then that's followed by the T wave, which is kind of a broader based, uh, lower amplitude signal. And that represents ventricular repolarization, the ventricles resetting themselves electrically to pump again. The confusion that sometimes happens is with the nomenclature of QRS, because uh, if when we say a Q wave, a Q wave is if that ventricular depolarization, if the first deflection is downward, that's a Q wave. But if you look at an EKG, there's a lot of leads where you don't see a Q wave. The first deflection is upward. And you don't call that a Q wave. If the first deflection is upward, you call that an R. So right, right even there, the nomenclature gets a little confusing, right? We, call, we still call it a QRS complex, but it might be an RS. It might be an RSR prime where you have two R waves, right? So like even the very basics of EKG reading can get pretty confusing for people who don't have experience doing it. And that, that makes it kind of annoying. I always thought those were just the bunny ear waves. I thought I, I always called them bunny ears, but now I know I should call them R prime. So exactly. I, I call them that too, because yeah, we like to keep things simple. Bunny ears. Exactly. RSR Beautiful. prime. You got it. Those are the bunny ears. This is great. So we have our foundation. We know we're looking for electro, uh, the electro signal through the heart. We have a general understanding of what we're looking for at each space. Let's dive in and start talking about EKGs and we'll use Sam Jotes. We understand most cardiologists recommend attacking EKG with a systematic approach so that you never miss a beat. There we go. Ah, oh, there it is. Oh. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Um, Huge setup right there. Huge sorry. setup. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> and so let's. Um, I would love to hear you know your expert approach of you know how you approach an EKG or or how you would walk one of your residents or fellows through uh, approaching an EKG. We have a fresh EKG on Brie. Let, let's go through it. Sure, one hundred percent. So the the bottom line is whatever makes sense to you. That's how you do it, but you just do it the same way every time, just like you take a history the same way every time, you do a physical exam the same way every time, so you don't leave anything out, right? So figure out what makes sense to you, and then just do it that way and repeat it the same way every time, because what what's going to happen is eventually you're going to see a totally abnormal EKG, and if you don't have that systematic way of going about it, you're going to get totally distracted and start looking at, oh my gosh, what's that wave that looks really big, you know, or whatever, so... Having a systematic way of going about it is really important uh, and just do it the same way every time. It doesn't really matter the order in which you do it. But I, I do kind of what you would read in a textbook, which usually starts out with what's the heart rate? What is the heart? Uh, well, what's the heart rhythm? And I would put a rhythm slash axis because as we'll discuss, axis actually has something to do with determining what the heart rhythm is. And I'll unpack that in a minute. So rate, uh, rhythm slash axis. Uh, looking at the intervals, uh, how much time it takes for these different signals to uh, these different events to take place. Look for signs of hypertrophy in uh, in the atria and the ventricles, and then finally look for uh, what I would call just repolarization abnormalities. So T wave or, or the the T wave funkiness, as I like to kind of say. I have one quick question. So you know, say I'm in the emergency department or in my clinic, and I ask my nurse to get an EKG. They, they hand it to me and say, can I take the leads off? If you look at that glance of that EKG, what are the things that say, all right, things look good. I can spend a little more time looking at this, but 
this is a good AKG or this is an EKG that we need to redo. Yeah. So one thing that happens a lot in kids is a really messy baseline where the signals are just kind of all over the place. It makes it very difficult to read. And sometimes that, you know, when the kid is screaming and really giving you a hard time, there's, there's no two ways around that. One of the most common technical abnormalities, and this happens in the most experienced people who do this, is uh, limb lead reversals. So when you put you know, the, the electrode for the right arm on the left arm and the, the one for the left arm on the right arm, and uh, there's a, this is a nice little pearl. There's a nice way to, uh, to figure out whether that's happened. So when, we're, when we talk about looking at, um, looking at axis and looking at rhythm, what we'll talk about is looking at what does the P wave look like and what does the QRS complex look like, in particular in leads one and leads AVF. So this is going to make a little bit more sense when we talk about those things. But um, uh, if you see that that if you see that the axis of the P wave is off and the axis of the QRS is off, either that kid's got situs inversus or you got a limb lead reversal, and that'll make a little bit more sense when we um, uh, when we talk about axis. Awesome. So I think it's a perfect transition. Oh, sorry, Chris. Did you want to? I was going to ask one more thing. Um, So say we do have, so we figure out limb lead reversal and which we will talk a little bit more in access, but you also said something about sort of like a messy baseline. Is there anything we can fix about that? Because I always feel like, uh, yeah, we'll switch out the stickers and do other things. And sometimes you're like, are we just going to have to deal with it or what? Like, yeah, you do? know, th- there are definitely some days where you, you just know you're not going to be able to get what you need. But, um, you know, you, you, you do what you have to do. We we uh, we work with this fantastic MA in our clinic who just she is the baby whisperer and she can get these kids to settle down and she knows right where right, right when to hit uh, so that we get nice, you know, clean six seconds of information or whatever. And um, uh, so th- there's not really any. A trick to it other than if you can get that baby calm, you know, employ the family, employ the siblings, you know, whatever it takes to get the kid to just kind of calm down and settle down. Um, th- there's nothing else I can tell you besides that. Awesome. So we're going to go with the rate rhythm slash axis intervals, hypertrophy, and then the uh, repolarization uh, abnormality. So let's go in order, but, um, but luckily we're going to skip rate because that seems mostly intuitive for our listeners. And so we'll jump directly to rhythm. Uh, we probably won't take too much time here because we actually have a whole episode that you uh, did for us on SVT itself. Um, please check that out. Episode 37, I think. Um, and, but maybe we'll just go to the one piece, which is really sinus rhythm. So like, how do I know that Berea is in sinus rhythm? And if you can walk us through what actual sinus is, that would be, um, that would be really helpful. You bet. So, uh, the pace, <clears throat> excuse me, the pacemaker of the heart is the sinus node, uh, or sinoatrial node, SA node. The SA node lives up in the high right atrium. So right where the superior vena cava comes into the right atrium, that's usually where the sinus node lives. And the sinus node is the pacemaker of the heart. It is the thing, it is the part of the heart with the most automaticity. Automaticity means it's just going to depolarize uh, on its own without any signal from anywhere else. And uh, because the sinus node has the most automaticity, it will, it's the fastest beat of the drummer, so to speak, it will dictate what the heart rate is. And, and that rate will uh, depend on things like adrenergic tone and direct innervation um, through, uh, through sympathetics, for example, and parasympathetics. But anyway, the sinus node, since it lives in the high right atrium, and that means that the electrical signal is going to originate there. If you think about it again, think about that heart sitting in the chest. Okay, the, way, the electric wave is going to move from high right, and then it's going to move from the patient's right toward the patient's left. 
and from the top of the heart toward the bottom. So that means that wavefront is moving in the relative to the patient, moving from the patient's right to the patient's left, and moving from superior to inferior. If we go back to those leads that we were talking about before, uh, the uh, the bipolar leads and the uh, and the limb leads, we focus mostly on leads one and leads AVF. One again is one of the bipolar leads, and by conv- uh, lead one is straight out to the left of the patient. And just by convention, we call that zero degrees. That's that's where you got to start somewhere. Lead one is zero degrees. That's our reference point. AVF is a limb lead, and that's stuck to the left leg, and that's obviously straight down. So that is a a 90-degree angle from our lead one, and so that's, by convention, 90 degrees. So when we say 90 degrees, straight down. Lead one at zero degrees, straight to the patient's left. If we think about where that how that P wave should look in those two leads. Well, it's moving from the patient's right toward the patient's left. And when you have depolarization moving toward a lead, it causes an upward deflection on the EKG. So the P wave should be, it should look upright in lead one. And it it should also look upright in lead AVF because the wave front is moving from top to bottom toward lead AVF. So when we talk about sinus rhythm, you should have a P wave associated with every QRS. If you have extra P waves, then maybe it's not sinus rhythm. Maybe you got some premature atrial contractions or something like that. If you have not enough QRSs, you ha- or, or, or you might, uh, I should say, you, should, you also might have heart block, right? Like maybe some of those P waves aren't making it down into the ventricles. Uh, and we, so we wouldn't call that sinus rhythm. We might call it something else. But if you have one P wave with every QRS and a QRS with every P wave, and those P waves look like they're coming from the sinus node, that is, it's upright in one, upright in AVF. That's sinus rhythm. I love it. I feel like that's like the, the first med student uh, knee-jerk thing that they learn on the EKG is P before every QRS, QRS after every P. And it's just like great to like drill that down of this is this is looking at uh, uh, sinus rhythm. Totally. But a lot of people leave out looking at the P wave axis. And the thing is, sometimes yeah. people have an ectopic atrial rhythm where the pacemaker isn't where it's supposed to be. So it is, especially when you talk about congenital heart disease and, and arrhythmia and stuff, looking at the uh, morphology of the P wave is also important. That's a great pearl. I uh, love that. The other, uh, the other way that we use axis is, um, and when we, when we uh, sorry, when people say uh, looking at, uh, hey, what, what's the axis on this EKG? They're generally talking about QRS axis. What is the QRS axis? And if you think about it, particularly in the mature heart, not necessarily in the baby as we'll talk about, but in a mature heart, um, the left ventricle is generally more massive than the right. And so all EKG tracings um, are looking at kind of average signals, right? If you have myocardium that's depolarizing and it's moving in multiple different directions at the same time, right? It's moving through the left ventricle, it's moving through the right ventricle. When you look at it from any point in space, you're kind of looking at, well, what's the net force? I got, you know, X amount moving this way. I got Y amount moving the other way. Well, from my perspective, how much is actually moving toward me? Because the, the two, two signals moving, two uh, signals of the same amplitude moving directly away from one another are going to have zero effect from, from a point in the middle of them, you know? So um, when we look at QRS axis, in most hearts, in most mature hearts, the left heart is more massive. And as a result of that, that kind of pulls the QR axis kind of toward the left. So generally speaking, when ventricles depolarize, that depolarization uh, looks like it's kind of moving uh, from right to left. 
And like the atria, it's kind of the, that depolarization front is also moving from top to bottom. So the QRS axis also should be upright in one, upright in AVF, with a couple of important exceptions, um, which I guess we could get into now. Newborns, uh, they uh, in utero, you're, as you probably remember, the fetal circulation is really uh, a lot different than postnatal circulation. The lungs are collapsed. The vessels in the, in the lungs as a result of that have very high resistance. The blood vessels in the systemic circulation, on the other hand, are uh, tied into the low resistance placental system. So the systemic vascular resistance is actually quite low, the opposite of what you see in postnatal life. And as a result of that, the right side of the heart um, is actually, and, and because of the shunts that are present in fetal life, the right heart is actually doing about two-thirds of combined cardiac output during fetal life. And as a result, the right heart is more massive, the right ventricle is more massive than the left at the time of birth. And you see that on a resting EKG. What you'll see is most babies, when they're born, their QRS axis is actually aimed toward the right. And that's normal. So when you see a right axis deviation in, a, in an infant, that's a totally normal thing. And then if you think about, well, what's going to happen to that muscle over time? Well, just like any other muscle, as, as the baby's heart starts to pump against that higher systemic vascular resistance, the left heart is going to start to beef up. And while the uh, pulmonary vascular resistance is relaxing as those lungs fill with air and as the smooth muscle kind of goes away, uh, the right heart kind of gets flabby. It's like out of shape. And so the forces kind of shift from right to left and you'll see that QRS axis sweep over time toward the left. And so just as a, a teach back and an opportunity for me, you know, to understand, we talked about right axis deviation uh, in a newborn, we would expect the QRS complex being down in one up in AVF. Is that correct? And then as the newborn heart matures, we should start to sleep gradually over time, the QRS going from negative to positive in that first lead. Is that, yeah, is that lead, right? In lead one, that's absolutely correct. And remember, there's always a pretty wide range of normal. So if you see a baby who has a slightly leftward axis, that's not necessarily an abnormality. Just like if you see a teenager with just a little bit of right axis deviation, that's not necessarily an abnormality, but it should catch your eye because it might be, um, it might be hint, uh, giving you a hint that there might be something wrong. So for those of us who think about axis in terms of degrees, would you say then, you know, with, with a negative AVF and uh, with a positive AVF, but negative uh, one, if they're in the one in the one eighties, that's still okay. Or um, yeah. So to, so again, to keep it like totally simple, um, we're just going to like pay attention, right. To lead one lead AVF. So we kind of know what the electrical, we know if the electrical signal is moving toward the right or toward the left. And we know whether it's moving up or it's moving down. And I would say that just go with the kind of rule of thumb. If you're seeing a baby with a little bit of a right axis deviation, you know that that's going to be normal. If you see a teenager with a right axis deviation, instead of trying to memorize, oh, I think the cutoff is like 126 degrees and that's abnormal, it should just catch your eye that that teenager has a right axis deviation. And then look it up in a reference book to say, because I can't remember, I can't, you know, the, those references for like for how what the axis should be it shifts over time, right? So am I going to remember like what is an abnormal right axis in a six-month-old versus a, a 10-year-old? No, there's much better uses for my brain cells than, than remembering that little stuff, right? So I look at the books just like everybody else. Perfect. Love right, that there, answer. 
And I like that too. Are there uh, other, what are other um, pathologies or other things that might present with axis deviation other than newborn? Are there other things where it's like, oh, this is an axis deviation that's consistent with our suspicion for? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So um, the first thing to say is uh, there are certain congenital heart diseases that give you characteristic axis abnormalities. Probably the, the one that you should, if you needed to know any of them, the one that you should probably know is that an uh, atrioventricular canal defect, uh, that's when you have a large premum atrial septal defect combined with a large inlet ventricular septal defect, very commonly seen in uh, children with trisomy 21. Uh, in fact, we may have talked about this in the congenital heart disease talk, but about 50% of kids with trisomy 21 have a congenital heart problem, and about 50% of them have an AV canal defect. AV canal defects, the location of that defect makes it such that um, the Hisperkinji system, which is the system that gets that electrical signal down into the ventricles, the VSD is right where it, that, that, that uh, Hisperkinji system wants to be. And what ends up happening is that when you have an AV canal defect, the uh, Hisperkinji system usually runs along the inferior margin of the VSD. And what that means is that your ventricles end up depolarizing from bottom up as opposed to top down. And that gives you a characteristic um, superior axis where you see a QRS that's negative in lead AVF. It's going away from lead AVF. And that should always kind of make you look twice. Why is the, you know, <laughs> why is that signal, why is the ventricular signal going away from lead AVF? So anytime you see that, check your references and just kind of make sure that, hey, is this normal or is this abnormal? Awesome. I think that's that's real good talking about access. Um, Justin, Chris, do you guys feel good about access? Or, um, you can move on. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, so as we go right along, uh, next is intervals. Um, so when we read an EKG, what intervals should we be looking at each time? And uh, and maybe in this one, I think it's a little bit easier to talk about some um, some normal ranges in that as well. Sure. Um, and again, actually, I would just go back to your references again, uh, but th there's a couple of rules of thumb. The first interval that we'll look at is the PR interval. That's the interval between the beginning of the P wave and the beginning of the QRS complex. And that's basically the amount of time it takes for the atria to depolarize and how long does it take for um, the electrical signal to make it through the AV node. Uh, we didn't really talk about the AV node much, but the AV node, if, if the sinus node is the pacemaker, you can think of the AV node as the gatekeeper. Electricity can't get from atria to ventricles except through the AV node and his Purkinje system. So there's only one place where that electricity should be able to get through. Um, and the AV node has a special conduction property that slows the electrical signal down. It's there because the mechanical um, phenomenon of the atria of the atria depolarizing electrically that happens pretty fast, but mechanically, that's a little bit of a slower problem for the muscle to squeeze enough to get that blood from upper to lower chambers. So the AV node slows the electrical signal down almost to give the blood a chance to catch up with the electrical signal, and then um, of course the electricity moves from the AV node into the Hisperkinji system. The Hisperkinji system, you can think of it like as like fiber optics. It like it like sends that electrical signal at super speed through uh, all the ventricular myocardium. So all that ventricular myocardium depolarizes in a very short amount of time. In any case, if you see, we were talking about PR interval, if you see a prolongation of the PR interval, that usually indicates that there's something going on with the 
uh, AV node because remember the AV node is kind of what's creating a lot of that PR interval because of that um, slowing of conduction that that a normal uh, AV node has. If you have pathology in the AV node, that will stretch the PR interval out even more. And does the PR interval change with age? So yeah. will you see it shorter or longer in younger kids versus yeah. uh, more mature hearts? Yeah, I mean, in general, it kind of follows logic, which is neonatal myocardium is like super healthy and everything goes really fast. Uh, so PR intervals in babies, you'll see, are generally uh, a bit uh, shorter than uh, the typical PR interval uh, in an adult. For example, we usually think of a neonatal uh, PR interval as being no more than like 120 milliseconds, three little boxes on an EKG. Whereas in an adult uh, or an older teen for that matter, a normal PR interval will go up to uh, 0.2 seconds, one big box. So there's a pretty big variability there in terms of age. And are there any abnormalities where you have a, a short PR interval or other kind of abnormalities there at the PR interval? 100%. The, the, the one that's uh, most uh, kind of famous or infamous would be Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. We were just talking about how the AV node is, the, is typically the only place where electricity can get from upper to lower chambers. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which I think we talked about in the SVT talk, uh, so go to that podcast for more information on that. But that, that means that there's another, uh, there's another place, what we call an accessory pathway, that can conduct from atria to ventricles. And that doesn't have an AV node on it. So that electricity, it, it's going to go through the atria, and then it's going to jump right over to the ventricles. And that'll shorten the PR interval because you won't get that decremental conduction. You won't get that slowing of the conduction through the AV node. So that'll shorten the PR interval. The other thing that can commonly do it is if you have an ectopic atrial rhythm. So if you happen to have another pacemaker, and some people have another pacemaker, it's not necessarily a big deal, but if you have an extra pacemaker that lives low in the atrium, well, hey, that's a lot closer to the AV node, and that can also shorten the PR interval. And then um, you kind of touched on the QRS uh complex as well and talking about it being the Hisperkinji system and uh in the the fiber optics of the uh of the uh, electrical system in the in the uh, in the heart but would you mind just talking a little bit about what it means to have a wider and narrow QRS sure so uh the Hisperkinji system uh has kind of three bundles two on the left and one on the right so like when you hear about oh bundle branch blocks and things like that that's what we're talking about the three bundles uh that comprise the the bundle of his in any case whenever you have an abnormality in in the Hisperkinji system. Uh, probably the most common one that we see in pediatrics is something called the right bundle branch block. And most oftentimes you'll see that after a kid has had heart surgery and the patch that they put, um, uh, the patch that they put into close, for example, a ventricular septal defect oftentimes interrupts the right bundle. And what that'll do is, uh, well, the left ventricle will depolarize normally. The right, it'll still depolarize but it'll do so only through gap, junc uh, gap junctions, not using the rapidly conducting system of the Hisperkinji system. So that travels awfully fast. It's electricity after all, but not quite as fast as if you were using the Hisperkinji system. And what that means is that it's going to take longer for the ventricular myocardium to depolarize, and that stretches out the QRS over time. The other common thing that gives you um, a wide QRS would be if a beat originates in the ventricles, for example, a premature ventricular contraction, you just have a random signal that comes up from the ventricular myocardium, that's not going to use the Hisperkinji system. So you'll see that QRS again stretch out over time because the electrical signals 
are using gap junctions, not the Hisper-Kinji system. And so if we're seeing a prolonged QRS, uh, a possible sign that there is a, a bundle branch block. Correct. Bundle branch block is possible. And uh, uh, the other thing is that it might be that the beat is originating in the ventricles. So if we have a bundle branch block but can happen in the left or the right, how can you tell the difference if you're seeing repolarization sort of delayed? Yeah, do sure. They, do they present differently on the EKG? Yeah, they will. So if you think of, we were talking before about uh, the precordial leads, that's the best place to look for bundle branch block morphology. So remember we said V1 sits all the way on the right side of the heart, V6 all the way on the left side of the heart. So let's just take right bundle branch block because that's like the, that's just what we started off talking about. We said with the right bundle uh, branch block, the right side of the heart is going to have it's going to be depolarizing slower. Okay, so let's let's think about what that means. So for the first part of the QRS, both ventricles are going to be depolarizing. The left faster than the right, but both will be moving at the same time, right? Toward the end of the QRS, the left side will be done depolarizing because it used the Hisper-Kinji system. That happens in the blink of an eye. The right, though, is still going to be depolarizing because it takes longer. And what that means is that the end of that QRS, it's going to be all right-sided force, right? It's just going to be right ventricle depolarizing. So what that means is that when you look at that QRS complex, and let's say you were looking at it from lead V1, the end of the QRS process, the, la the last part of it, it's going to be all positive. So you usually what, what you usually see is the first part of the QRS looks sort of normal, and then you just get this big hairy looking R wave, this big positive deflection in lead V1. I don't know if you call it the inverse or the converse or the opposite or whatever. You see in lead V6. In V6, what you'll see is, again, the beginning part of the QRS looks okay. And then you'll see usually this, this broad S wave, downward deflection at the end, at the tail end of that QRS. So that's what a right bundle branch block looks like. That makes sense. I feel like I remember learning in med school, you have a car driving from right to left and it turns right up the right bundle branch on V1. I don't know that I that like is it. a full I think you just made me more confused, man. Yeah, you know, no, but it's funny <laughs> that you say that because, you know, I, I should have said this earlier. There's some things in EKG reading that like you can make sense of them. And if you make sense of them, then like that's a lot easier to remember, right? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, you know, the right ventricle is the last thing to depolarize. And then there's other stuff that's just pattern recognition. And I can't explain it. I'm not sure that anybody can explain it well. And you just got to, th that's the kind of stuff that you get through repetition, learning the patterns, and then just kind of seeing them over time. I much prefer the stuff you can understand because then you don't have to memorize it. You can just say, oh, wait, let me just think about it for a sec. Okay, yeah, right. This is what a right bundle looks like. And then there are other stuff that, unfortunately, you just got to know the patterns or memorize them if you're a cardiologist. Otherwise, you just... Send them to us because we get a lot of practice looking at those patterns. And does the, so does the left a, bundle make yeah. sense? Oh, sorry, Chris. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say, is the left bundle like look like a mirror image of the right bundle or not? Exactly right. So what we're gonna see in a left bundle branch block from lead V1 on the right side of the heart, what is the end of the QRS gonna look like? The tail end of the QRS, is it gonna be directed upward or downward? Downward. Downward. Exactly. The car is gonna turn left. There you go. There you go. <laughs> And, and, that, and that big downward deflection is going to look fat and wide because it's taking a long time to get through all that myocardium without the Hisper-Kinji system. 
So why do we get, um, sometimes we talk about the RSR prime, which we talked about earlier. Why do we get the bunny ears in one and maybe not the other type of bundle branch block? Yeah. So um, the other name for the bunny ears pattern is an incomplete right bundle branch block. And the idea there is that, and again, the, the terminology gets really confusing, but what they're trying to tell you is an incomplete right, uh, an incomplete right bundle branch block. They call it that because, hey, that looks sort of like a bundle branch block. We're getting that weird second R wave at the end, but the difference is with an incomplete right bundle branch block, it happens over a normal amount of time. So that QRS, it's not stretched out over time. It's a normal duration QRS. And so you know the Hisperkinji system is working the way that it should. When we talk about patterns of hypertrophy, all bets are off with bundle branch blocks because all of the different patterns that you look for in ventricular hypertrophy assume that the ventricles are depolarizing at the same time. So once you get a bundle branch block, kind of all the rules that we'll talk about with hypertrophy kind of go out the window. What's a bifascicular block? That also, I feel like, comes up um, in the world. I don't, we'll for start sure. with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, the short answer to that is you don't need to know. The, sec- the, 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 long, the slightly longer version of it is... A bifurcicular block is just a right bundle branch block combined with a left anterior or left posterior fascicular block. Hopefully you don't have tri-fascicular block because then you're not conducting from atrium to ventricles anymore. But um, yeah, uh, so that, that's, that's what a bifurcicular block is. And, and there, are, there are various patterns that you would look for. It, it's useless to go over them now because even I forget sometimes and I got to look it up on the internet to be honest with you. And you had mentioned, just jumping clinically for a second, um, you had mentioned that most common cause, right bundle branch block, cardiac surgery, often for a VSD repair or something like that. Um, is there anything else we should figure out why these kids get bundle branch blocks or is that the main culprit usually? Yeah. And, and yes, yeah, so that, that those, are, those are the main culprits. And, and as a result of that, if you see a kid who's got a bundle branch block and they haven't had heart surgery or something else nasty that's happened to their heart, you got to check that out because that doesn't happen. That usually doesn't happen just willy nilly. Either they got something maybe congenital wrong. Maybe they have some sort of uh, congenital conduction abnormality. Maybe there's some sort of structural thing in there. Maybe they had um, myocarditis, previously diagnosed myocarditis that affected the conduction system or something. But that's something that should be evaluated. Awesome. And then to go to our last kind of interval on the list, um, the QTC. That often comes up. Um, so what does it mean to have a long or a favorite. short QTC? Oh, I hate the QTC. My, my favorite I, the interval. QTC is the bane of every pediatric cardiologist's <laughs> existence uh, and certainly every emergency room physician's existence. So the QT uh, interval is uh, the straight up QT uh, begins with the beginning of the QRS and ends at the end of the T wave. Um, we're not going to belabor it here, but uh, there are papers about, oh, how do you actually correctly measure a QT? Because people do it wrong all the time. Sometimes they include, um, like there are U waves. We're not going to talk about U waves, but sometimes you include the U wave and like makes the QT really long. Forget about that. Um, the QT, uh, so that's the QT interval, beginning of the QRS, end of the T wave. And some leads you see the end of the T wave really clearly, other leads you don't. You don't, I honestly, I look at an EKG and I'm like, where do I see the end of the T wave the clearest? That's generally what I'm looking at. Um, there, you know, as people go, oh, you should look at it in lead two or lead V5 or whatever, you know, just don't, don't go crazy. Like find out where you can see it well and measure it. The QTC, C for corrected QT interval, 
Uh, QTC is correcting the QT interval for how fast the heart rate is. Because as your heart rate speeds up, your QT interval is, to, is supposed to shorten in a compensatory kind of way. So that, and that makes sense, right? If the heart is, is, is firing at a faster rate, well, then it should, be, it should be repolarizing faster to get ready to keep up with that rate. So I can't use that rule of thumb where I just like take half of the R to R Q to Q interval. You know, or? I actually I think that that is a totally reasonable rule of thumb. And again, this is where the electrophysiologists out there are like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe he actually said that." But yeah, I, I honestly the, I think that that's a reasonable way to eyeball it. Um, and if you have any concerns, you run it by you run it by a cardiologist because we're just used to doing this all the time, and it takes us two seconds. So I have a question. So to, to uh, for Chris is, you know, saying that the QTC, the Q to the C is half the R to R means that it is not a prolonged QTC. If we find one of these QTC, if we find a, a incidental prolonged QTC, how worried should we be as far as cardiologists or how many times do I repeat it? If I repeat it twice and then it goes away, can I just pretend it never happened? Or is this something like once you see it, it, it's meaningful enough that we need to do further investigation. Sure. So it depends on the context. If you're taking care of a patient who's on like multiple medications that prolong the QT, and we're not going to go over that because that's a long list. You can yep. find you can find there's a a, a, prof, um, a non-for-profit organization, uh, uh, CredibleMeds.org. Uh, you can uh, sign on there for free, or you can set yourself up if you're a physician and have a free account. And they have like long lists of all the medicines that A, are thought to prolong the QT interval, and B, are especially the ones that are implicated in possibly inducing ventricular arrhythmias in people who have QT problems. Anyway, when you start to worry is when anybody who's got an abnormal QT and you hear a family history like Brie has, that should make you think twice. Again, the context, what medicines are the patients on? Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, electrolyte abnormalities uh, obviously can, uh, can affect various intervals uh, that we've just been talking about. Let's see. Most notably, the, probably the most important one there would be uh, potassium. So uh, low potassium levels tend to prolong the QT interval, whereas high potassium levels tend to shorten the QT interval. We don't necessarily have to get into the molecular biology behind that. Um, uh, calcium, uh, calcium also. Uh, low calcium tends to stretch out that QT interval. Mike, I have one question. So um, I think a lot of us who get EKGs, they, there's a part above where all the waves are, where a machine sort of spits out things. And I always tend to feel that the numbers I can trust. You know, we'll talk about the right side of the interpretation on top, but I feel like the numbers I like using because it'll give me a QT and a QTC. It will give me some intervals and may even give me an access uh, for my QRS, uh, can I? How how can I feel safe in using some of that stuff, or Chris, should I always I, be? Scared? I have bad news for you. You like one of the first things I tell people when we're talking about EKGs: never trust the machine. Never ever <laughs> trust the machine. I mean, I've seen a large number of pediatric EKGs where the machine says its interpretation is electric uh, electric ventricle pacemaker. And it's a pacemaker. What the heck are you talking about? It's just because the, like we were talking about before, the myocardium is so healthy and like those QRS complexes are so nice and tight 
the machine is like, oh yeah, that's gotta be a pacemaker signal, it's so good. So the, the machine doesn't know what it's talking about. What I will say, if you see an EKG that you think is normal, but the machine is kind of spitting out something abnormal, just look at it twice because it may have picked up something that you didn't quite catch. So when, an e when the machine spits out an abnormal reading on an EKG that you think is normal, take a second look at it. But EKG machines are gonna spit out all kinds of crazy stuff at you. And a lot, most of the time I would say it's nothing to worry about and it's actually normal. And, but you can't even really trust the interval stuff. Sometimes it gets it right, but more often than not, it gets it wrong. So let's talk a little bit about hypertrophy. So before we even discuss some of the criteria, because I think that is something we're definitely going to have to look up. So is the EKG a good screening test for hypertrophy? No, unfortunately not. But we use it all the time for that. So um, this is one of those. So EKG is the test of choice for arrhythmia, because arrhythmia is an electrical phenomenon. We use the electricity to give us hints about what the structure is, but it's not a structural test. So I think there are all, all kinds of papers have looked at different types of voltage criteria, you know, R wave in this lead plus S wave in that lead. And if it's greater than X number, you know, it's LVH. I haven't seen any papers that have had, you know, specificities higher than say like 80, 85%. And sensitive, their sensitivities are terrible. So if you diagnose LVH by doing an echocardiogram, which is a, that's a structural test, lots of those kids won't necessarily have EKG abnormalities. So lots of false positives, tons of false negatives, but heck, it's the best we got, right? We're not going to do echoes on everybody. Um, well, actually these days, point of care ultrasound. I know we're yeah, seeing more, yeah, more and more of those. Um, but that's one, a whole other, that's a whole other talk. <laughs> one, one uh, trick that podcast. I've always done when looking at someone's EKG, if someone like asked me like, do you, do you think this child has hypertrophy is I'll count that you are in V1 plus V6. And then I'll say that number out loud and say, oh, is the kid pretty thin though? Uh, and then I sound really smart. I don't have to remember <laughs> any of those criteria. And they just are so impressed that I, I knew the kid was thin. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that a good is that a good strategy when reading an EKG? Well, you know, I wouldn't totally rest my laurels on saying, "Oh, is that kid thin?" Well, oh yeah, yeah, sure, it's fun. <laughs> but what I would say is, um, you know, again, we use we use voltage criteria all the time. What I, one thing I will definitely say is, uh, when you're thinking about hypertrophy, rule number one, we're just going to be paying attention to the precordial leads. That's rule number one. Rule number two. Just look at V1 and V6. Keep it simple. V1 and V6, that's all we're going to look at. In like 99% of PD EKGs, all of the mid-precordial leads, you guys have seen these EKGs, right? The voltages are like running into each other. You can't even like make sense of what's an R and what's an S. Forget about mm -hmm. it. Don't even look at the mid-precordial leads. V1 and V6 is what you want to pay attention to. And if you look at it, for example, like in, in a lot of pediatric reference books, they, they just keep it to V1 and V6. And, and what they'll do is, Oh, um, based on the age of the child, they have printed out what the average value is for an R wave and an S wave and lead V1 and lead V6, you know, whether you're a month old or six months old or five years old or 10 years old, whatever. And they'll also usually have what's like 98th percentile, you know, what's like two standard deviations above the mean. So that if you're above that number, then you kind of know, hey, maybe this is abnormal. Maybe we should take a second look at this. But just like we were talking about with some of the other stuff, I can't remember all like, oh, how big is an R wave in V1 in a 10-year-old? I don't know. I know it's pretty big, but you know, I got to look at the reference books for that too. So 
don't feel bad if you're like, oh, I can't remember whether it's 17 or 18 millimeters and that's abnormal. Just look at your reference books and whatever. So, you know, when I was on uh, my cardiology rotations, I think as a med student, you know, we'd look at, oh, you know, I'd be like, this EKG looks different from this one. You know, there's new LVH or whatnot. But then, you know, it was always the attending and the fellow's like, oh, that's all lead placement or something like that. Like, does lead placement actually matter? Like, how can you tell? Yeah. So lead placement, it can definitely, um, it can definitely mess around with uh, T-wave morphology. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, you know, lead placement error can can make it uh, um, can make an EKG look pretty funky in folks with chest wall abnormalities, like you know, really deep pectus excavatum or something like that. So that kind of changes the way that the leads are, you know, relative to the heart. So that can make things look a little weird. Mostly, the lead placement errors they might result in things like abnormal R wave progression, abnormal T wave morphology. Like when you're expecting to see a, a certain pattern and it looks shifted a little bit or it looks a little bit off. Some of those, and again, most non-cardiologists aren't going to really pick up on that, but, you know, folks who look at a hundred of these things a day are going to say, oh, hey, that R-wave progression is off. Oh, they probably messed up the lead placement a little bit, or they switched one of the precordial leads or something like that. So usually not something that you got to worry too much about. And so should we, at the end of the day, if we have an abnormality that we've noticed in a reference book, should we just get an echocardiogram? Is that just the, is the test of choice or is there anything to say? And I guess the follow-up question is, even if it's normal, should we be getting an echocardiogram? So I would say, again, totally depends on the context of, of the situation. Me personally, and now th- this is like any PD cardiologists out there who are hearing this, they're probably going to be like, Mike Fahey, you son of a... You know, I always say, if you have... If you have and a doubt about a pediatric EKG, and especially if the, if the story doesn't make sense or there's something funky in the story, you're worried about something, just call the PD cardiologist and say, hey, can you look at this EKG for me? The best, the best pages that I get in the middle of the night are, hey, can you read this EKG for me? Because I'm like, oh, thank God, I don't have to go in. I just got to read this EKG and then I can go back <laughs> to sleep. Because uh, it's usually that. It's usually like, oh, yeah, no, whatever. It's Hey, it's a thin. Hey, does this kid have a thin chest wall? Oh yeah, I knew it, right? You know, it's stuff, it's stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, just if there's any doubts, and 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 then we'll know. Oh, you know, based on that story, that sounds a little funny. Hey, this EKG is kind of it's kind of borderline. It's not totally normal. Maybe we'll see this kid in clinic next week and just kind of dot the i's and cross the t's. A lot of the times, especially um, when you're see, when you're getting EKGs in the emergency department. We see abnormal EKGs in the ED all the time and all kinds of abnormalities that when you do a follow-up EKG, when that kid is out of that high adrenaline state, they're now recovered from whatever illness or electrolyte abnormality or whatever brought them into the ED, it looks stone cold normal. So that's another really nice thing is that, you know, you bring this family in who is freaked out because they had the abnormal EKG in in the emergency department. You bring them into clinic, they have a stone cold normal EKG and you say, look, this is, this is no problem. And it's like, it's the best thing for us because it's such an easy evaluation and we get to, we get all the credit for the reassurance and stuff and the parents are all happy. So that's another good evaluation for us. Nice. Nice. All right. So I think last in our list of the, um, We've kind of made it all the way. We find done, uh, rate, we've done rhythm slash access, we've done intervals, we've done hypertrophy, and now finally this is kind of the scanning repull area. Um, we are going to have to kind of narrow this and make this a little bit short just based on time, but um, 
But let's just start with the T-Wave. I think T-Wave changes come up constantly, um, and we're always curious about, hey, is this supposed to be inverted? Is this not supposed to be inverted? Can you just kind of walk us through what we should be looking at for the T-Wave when we do some scanning? Yeah, so getting into repolarization and or, you know, some people call scanning, looking through the ST segments and T-Waves, um, I just say, hey, my last, the last part of my algorithm is let's look at repolarization, which is ST segment and T-Wave. So... Um, Without getting into all the specific patterns that you know result in X, Y, and Z, it's probably just easier to kind of talk about broad strokes, and that's really all you need to know for, for EKG basics. The first thing that I'm going to look at, I look at the T waves um, in the precordial leads. So just like we were using the precordial leads for hypertrophy, we're also going to use the precordial leads predominantly to look at repolarization. You can use the limb leads and bipolar leads, but generally speaking, precordial leads are more helpful. I'm going to first look for what does that T wave progression look like? And what I mean by that is, are the T waves up? Or are they down? And in which leads are they up or, or down? Uh, pediatric, so the, sorry, let's start with adult. Adult EKGs, your T waves should all be upright in, all, in V1 through V6. They should all be upright. Sometimes your older teens will still have a little bit of inversion in V1, but I'll leave the adult cardiologists to talk about persistence of inverted T waves in V1. I think that can be abnormal in adults, but again, that's out of my wheelhouse. Remember that inverted T waves in the right-sided precordial leads, so V1, V2, V3, those can be normal. And really, you should have an inverted T wave at least in V1 as a baby um, uh, and through the first few years of life, for several years of life, actually. In most kids, kids under 10 years of age, that's, that's kind of a cutoff, 10 years of age, you should have an inverted T wave in lead V1. Oftentimes, the younger kids will have inverted T waves in V1 and in V2, maybe even in V3. And as the myocardium matures over time, you will see those T waves gradually turn upright starting lead V3 and then in V2 and finally V1 so that they ultimately turn on, uh, they ultimately develop the adult pattern of upright T waves all over the place. Okay, if I don't see that pattern, so thing one would be, hey, it looks like an adult pattern, but the kid's two years old or three years old or something. When you see upright T waves in V1 and the kid's less than 10 years of age, think right ventricular hypertrophy. Don't ask me why. That's one of those stupid pattern recognition things. I wish I knew why, but it's just, just think RVH. It doesn't necessarily mean it, but it's a pretty big hint toward it. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing, you should never, ever, 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 ever have inverted T waves in the left side of precordial leads, V4 through V6. Never, never negative, uh, negative uh, deflection T waves. That's always a sign of something wrong with the myocardium, be it Wicked hypertrophy, myocardial strain, some other maybe inherited like you know, channelopathy thing or something like that, that that's just affecting the, the, the repolarization. So that, that, that's a big tip off for myocardial disease. Um, the next thing I'd look for, uh, so we said T-wave, uh, just general pattern, then look for, um, you know, kind of more just general T-wave morphology. Again, are there, are there inverted T-waves anywhere? A lot of times you'll see T-wave flattening where there's just like not much of a T-wave there at all. There's a lot of medicines, particularly um, uh, psychotropic medicines, uh, psychiatric medicines that will tend to flatten the T-wave. And so that's not necessarily an abnormality. 
But repolarization abnormalities, whether it's flattened T waves or T wave inversions, are kind of a red flag. You just got to do your homework a little bit to make sure that you're not dealing with some sort of my abnormal myocardium. Uh, because in a, in a lot of conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or myocarditis or, um, or, or other things that cause abnormalities in myocardium, kind of the first thing that gets a little wonky is repolarization. Again, I don't know why that is, but, but it's just a fact. So um, T-wave progression, T-wave morphology, and then kind of ST segments. So a really common thing that we see all the time that's kind of a, a red flag is ST segment elevations, right? And in kids, you see this a lot, the ST segment elevation that actually isn't ischemia because kids don't get myocardial ischemia, right? From At least from atherosclerosis, unless they have homozygous hypercholesterol, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. We're not going to talk about that. But um, ST segments, uh, elevated ST segments in kids is almost always this phenomenon called early repolarization that gets to that really healthy myocardium that I was talking about before, where the myocardium is just so healthy that part of the myocardium starts to repolarize before, <laughs> before part of it is done depolarizing. And what that means is that the T wave kind of comes sticking out straight out of the backside of the QRS. And, and that makes it look like you have this huge ST segment elevation. But most of the time, that's just early repolarization. How do you tell the difference? Honestly, I don't know. Because if I see that EKG with the ST segment elevation everywhere, and you say, oh, this kid just came in for like a pre-sports physical and we saw this. I say, oh, pff, early repolarization, normal variant. If you call, if you show me the same EKG and you're like, oh, 16-year-old, he came into the ED with three days of fever and chest pain and he's short of breath. It's, oh, that's acute pericarditis. You know, send the kid to the ICU, mm -hmm. right? So um, it, it all has to do with context. But most ST segment elevations are, are, are just a normal variant in, in kids. And that's because the myocardium is, is super healthy. Is that how you kind of described it? That the J point elevation says the myocardium is too healthy? Yeah. Well, oh, and I'm glad you said J point elevation. They call it J point elevation because when you look at the shape of that ST segment going into the T wave, it's, it looks like a capital J. Whereas a lot of pathologic ST elevation that you see, for example, in myocardial ischemia, has more of that tombstone pattern, which is convex. Convex? <laughs> convex. It's convex. convex. Yeah, you yeah. go into a cave. Right, exactly. Your, yeah, car, yeah. your car turns right at the right, oh, block, no. right <laughs> block and then goes into the cave. <laughs> anyway, looks like a tombstone. Whether that's, I think that's convex. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that, that's pathologic. But um, most, most ST segment elevations in kids, again, early repole called J-pointing and a normal variant. Yeah. And you wanted, us, you wanted us to remind you a little bit about the, the neonate. Did we hit oh, that topic? Yes. Thank you. All right. Neonatal EKGs. <laughs> gotcha okay. Neonatal EKGs. In the first 72 hours, all bets are off. I think it has something to do with the myocardium, like getting used to transitioning from being at an oxygen saturation of about 65%, which is what it is in utero, to 100%. I don't know what it, I don't know what's going on. But you see all kinds of weird, especially repolarization abnormalities in newborn EKGs. So QT prolongation. T-wave inversions, T-wave funkiness, forget about it in the first 72 hours of life. Don't even bother because you just can't trust it. Once you get out of that 72 hours, then we're going to start saying, hey, you see that upright T-wave in lead V1, something's not right. If you see T-wave inversions in the left side of precordial lead, something's not right. But kind of all bets are off for the first 72 hours or so. 
This is actually very validating just as med peds. I feel like an adult, I felt very <laughs> comfortable with EKGs, adolescents, like pretty comfortable. As they got younger, less and less. If someone asked me to read a newborn EKG, it would be like, I have no idea what's going on here. And so, yes, great. And that's great because, because it makes guys like me really feel smart where it's like, <laughs> it's just we've seen a whole lot more of these. And that, that's the only difference. I've gotten in trouble. I don't know if Sam, Chris, who are also med peds, have gotten in trouble before, but I've had abnormalities on EKGs that I've sent to the pediatric cardiologist who has always been uh, very kind. But the answer is almost always, that's actually very normal in kids. This is not a problem because I, I pick up on something that seems to be what I think is abnormal, probably an inverted T wave and being like, this isn't supposed to be there. <laughs> And they say, no, that's, that's, that's what a kid's EKG looks like. No, I, I, I've had the same experience, you know, back when I was, uh, in the military, we had a, a peds EP doc who was a friend of mine. And every time we got EKG, I was like, I, I have no idea what's going on there. And he was always, always there to help me always, always know who your, who your best uh, pediatric cardiologist on, on call is. So, <laughs> so we have finally got all our tools to read this EKG from Bray. We got the rate and rhythm. Um, we got the axis, we got the intervals, um, and we have our scanning now. So uh, let me kind of rot through what we found on her EKG, and, uh, and then we can maybe ask a follow-up question here. So for rate and rhythm, Brie is in normal sinus rhythm. So she has a normal axis of positive 45 degrees. Her PR interval is 120 milliseconds. Now her QRS interval is 80 milliseconds, and her QTC interval is 525 milliseconds, which we're going to say is prolonged for age. She has no right ventricular hypertrophy or left ventricular hypertrophy, excuse me, and we find nothing on scanning. So really my first question is, this truly is an incidental finding, although we do have this family history. What is the first thing that we should do? Sure. So first thing again, um, we want to ask about any medicines that she might be on or any maybe medicines. Well, again, in a kid this age, they're not going to be ingesting medicines on their own, but like in an older toddler or something like that, hey, what medicines are around the house? Because this might be evidence of some sort of ingestion, right? Um, but outside of that, uh, a QT, uh, a corrected QT interval of greater than 500, that is way abnormal. You know, some, we'll see stuff where it's, oh, it's 460 or 470 or something. And, you know, a lot of times that you remeasure it or you, you do it again when the kid's not sick or something and it normalizes. A QTC of 500, there's something seriously wrong going there. And, 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 a non-cardiologist is going to pick up on that. Like that's not one of those ones where it's like, oh, is that like, is that, is that QT interval bigger than the art, like half the R to R? Like anybody will, will see, hey, there's something that doesn't look, this, this looks off. Um, so 525, holy smokes, that's really prolonged. So that's highly suggestive of a congenital, um, a congenital long QT syndrome where uh, also, you know, known as a channelopathy, there's, there's very, uh, many, many types of specific ion channels that you can have inherited mutations in that affect uh, repolarization, that prolong that QT interval. And uh, importantly, because you expand that amount of time that the myocardium is repolarizing, that increases the chances that you might have an R on T phenomenon, like some sort of premature beat or something like that, that depolarizes the myocardium during that really sensitive time where it's not totally refractory. It's just partially refractory. And then you get some of the myocardium depolarizing, some of the myocardium not. And that's when you start to get these weird reentrant loops in the ventricles. And then you're in something like VTAC or Tersade point or 
something that degenerates right into V-fib and that's, that's potentially lethal. I imagine the, um, that is congenital prolonged QTC, but we've got to work up some of the other things that could be acquired. So are there any tests that we should, if I see this automatically, I should be getting off the bat? Yep. One, like a set of electrolytes first and, first and foremost, right? Because maybe, oh, actually maybe this kid has some sort of congenital like hypocalcemia. They have DeGeorge syndrome or something like that, right? So there, there's definitely some congenital stuff that can do it. So electrolytes, you might want to throw a thyroid panel in there. Sometimes thyroid can do weird things to your intervals, but probably not. Probably not a QTC of 525. That seems a little crazy. Um, those would be the main ones to do right off the bat. And then again, just going back to the basics, family history, medications, other things that are everyday kinds of things that might, uh, that might prolong that QT. And then just get one of us on the horn and, uh, and we can talk it through. And does the echocardiogram actually mean anything in this case? Because is this a structural abnormality or is this not a structural abnormality? It's congenital long QT syndromes are usually not um, things that you can see on an echocardiogram. So again, uh, long QT syndrome, that is an electrical phenomenon. That is what the EKG is made for. Echo, that's not made for electricity. That's made for structure. So that gets back to like the utility of these different tests. Um, but what we are recognizing more and more is that there is considerable overlap between uh, certain folks who have inherited cardiomyopathies and people who have inherited channelopathies. So we're noticing more and more, for example, that uncle of Brie who passed away suddenly, you might do an autopsy and find, hey, this individual had a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And when their family members come in for screening, they don't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but they got long QT syndrome. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Did lightning strike twice in this family? Mm. Again, getting a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but that that is a phenomenon that is becoming more and more uh, reported that in, in some individuals, there's overlap between these repolarization abnormalities and folks who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And again, that that's something that you guys don't have to know, but it's something that uh, PD cardiologists can kind of help you sort out. Can't help myself. I do want to ask one more question, follow up on this. For this child who came in with a, you know, brew or with concern, turned blue, uh, we're excited by this. We're thinking that there's a prolonged QTC. What's the level of urgency? Is this someone that can go home that'll follow up with cardiology in a couple of weeks? Or is this someone that needs to be intervened upon in some way? If we see this person in clinic, is this an urgent consult or we'll, we'll see you next Tuesday? Yeah, I would say it's it's pretty urgent because, you know, you don't know what happened to that kid during that event. It could have just been a, a brew and, you know, oh, okay, it was something totally unrelated to this QTC. But boy, you don't know, right? And, and maybe it was some a little electrolyte abnormality that pushed that kid with a congenital long QT over the edge that it then became, you know, a, a malignant kind of problem. So if I was if I was on call and you called me from the ED with this kid, I would say, hey, you know what? To be absolutely safe, let's watch this kid overnight on a on a mm. cardiac monitor in a setting in the hospital where you you know where you're going to be able to get to them pretty fast if they if they misbehave, so to speak. And then if they look like a peach overnight and there's no hint of any arrhythmia, and you repeat that EKG in the morning and it's still totally stone cold normal, you say, hey, look. Maybe at that point you say, all right, look, let, let's do a little bit of a digger deep. Let's do EKGs in first degree family members, for example, to see if there's any evidence of that QT abnormality in other uh, first degree family members. But it all kind of depends on what you see. But in a kid who has a story that doesn't quite add up with a finding that looks pretty abnormal, you definitely got to dig a little deeper. 
And Justin mentioned intervention. You know, what's generally the piece? Let's say, what, what are they going to leave the hospital with? I imagine it's not an ablation to someone who is this age. Is there? Are they starting on a beta blocker? Are they starting on an antiarrhythmic? Yeah. So the vast majority of kids with congenital long QT syndrome, there's now like 10 or 12 or 15 of these now, but uh, long QT type one, type two, and type three that have to do with uh, mutations in specific ion channels, those, those three make up the lion's share, probably greater than 90% of, of folks with long QT syndrome. Type one and type two especially seem to respond pretty well to beta blockers in the sense that that seems to lower the rate of sudden cardiac death in those individuals. The mechanism by that is a little uncertain, a little bit less so with type three. But yeah, what I would probably do is if if it looks like the real deal, uh, well, actually, you know what I would do? I, I would call my local pediatric electrophysiologist because this is something that's even out of the wheelhouse of a general pediatric cardiologist. And so I would just make sure, you know, because those guys are up on the on the most up-to-date stuff with respect to management. And, and I would want to make sure that I, I knew I knew that I was making the right call. But as far as what I know now, yep, that kid goes home on a beta blocker and, and they have written down on a piece of paper or in the computer when they're seeing the electrophysiologist <laughs> and, and when all their family members are going to get EKGs and that sort of stuff. Because you just, this is a kid that you don't want to lose to follow up. That's when we know we have a good episode and have saturated the data when when the, the question is, is we go to the sub-sub-specialist. Um, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Well, I think most um, electrophysiologists would have said, guys, you should have come to me. me not the electrophysiologist, you should have come to the electrophysiologist yeah. before that hack. Uh, but, you know. They're busy. We yeah. don't want to bother them. This has been great. I think this was a very successful approach to understanding the EKG, going through it systematically. And again, I really think this is like the pilot school. You know, now it's so much easier with this background to really dive into different EKGs and and start practicing. So um, I think this is going to be well-received. For listeners, I would love to hear feedback if this episode is helpful. The Cribsiders at gmail.com, you can email us. But to kind of close up, uh, Mike, do you have any bid take-home points for our listeners, med student, residents, fellows, trainees, faculty, who uh, about the EKG process? 100%. Uh, n- rule number one, have your system of looking at it the same way every time. Rule number two, keep it simple. You know, c- keep it simple to, I think I can generally recognize normal and I think I can kind of recognize something that's abnormal and anything outside of that, it's okay to give us a call. But, you know, before you give us a call, like, you know, maybe look up the voltages or whatever in, in your reference book, right? But like, you know, kind of know your limits, know, know what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. And, and then number three would just be, don't beat yourself up. If you feel like you're, you're not great at this, it takes repetition. It takes knowing some basics and it, it's like anything else. It takes repetition, doing it again and again. And the more you do it, the more you get comfortable with it. And, and, and that's about it. Love it. And anything you want to plug, anything that you want to send our listeners to, either uh, a reference for QTC numbers or uh, something else that you think is, is worthwhile in sharing? Yeah. I mean, I've always found the uh, the cardiology section in the Harriet Lane uh, Handbook of Pediatrics to be, um, especially that they have a table that has all of those aged matched norm values for axis and interval and how big the R wave should be and how deep the S wave should be. And it all fits on one page. So you print that out, you fold it up or you take a picture of it in your phone and then you have it, whatever. 
that's a super succinct and nice little reference to have. Excellent. This has been wonderful. Thank you again for the third time for coming and sharing your expertise. I think this will be a, a quintessential part of of a lot of people's uh, training in EKGs. So, so thank you for joining us. Thank you for the time. Thanks for spending the night with the Cribsiders. Very happy to do it, guys. Thanks again for having me. And if you get a lot of hate mail on that Gmail account that you said, <laughs> you can direct it right to Sam. This was all his idea. <laughs> all to yes, Sam. All to Sam. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I'll take it. Mike, if we bring you on again, I think Four Timers Club, you get a blazer, so it should be good. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll get yeah. a cop. Maybe I'll get that extra copy of your book or something. That would be pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, happy to do it anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. So this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. That's the third time we've dropped that email, so send us a note. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Sam Mazur, our showrunner for this whole show, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. If you made it to the end of this super long episode, I have another AI poem for you. A small chest, a small heart, a small child so fragile and fair. Sticks on skin, wires all around, a test to make sure they are sound. The heart beats strong and steady. The rhythm is regular and clear. The doctor smiles, all is well. The child is healthy, no fear. A small child, a small heart. A small test, but a big relief. The EKG is done, the child is well. And the parents can breathe a sigh of relief. Bravo, bravo. (laughs) See you guys later. Future of EKGs. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.